Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today we are talking about STIs or sexually transmitted infections. Um, You guys may have previously heard about STDs or sexually transmitted diseases, um, but the preferred terminology these days is infections over diseases. Um, So just for the remainder of this podcast and for the future, please just use STIs. So we routinely screen all sexually active people with any possible exposure for STIs. Um, You should be screened at least annually if you're sexually active um, or if you have any potential exposures potentially more frequently than that. So what does that mean? How do I actually talk to people about this? Usually what I do is I ask people at their annuals or any problem visits, is there any reason that we should be looking for or testing for sexually transmitted infections today? Could you have any possible exposures? And I phrase it that way because I don't want to say, are you in a monogamous, mutually monogamous relationship? Because not everybody knows if they're truly in a mutually monogamous relationship. Um, And I don't honestly need to know how they define their relationship. It's just not part of my business. But what I want to know is, could they have any possible primary or secondary exposures to SCIs? So asking it that way, I think makes it sound a little bit more realistic. Could you have any possible exposures? Sure. Couldn't we all? Um, And so I think more people are open to saying, yeah, let's just get tested rather than being like, no, I think I trust my partner Um, or making it sound like there's any judgment associated with it. Um, so that's just thinking about getting people screened. You'll hear and see in some places recommendations that you do it annually up to age 26, and then you don't do it anymore. Um, some insurance companies still try to make us only, you know, try to only cover it up to age 26. That is a holdover from when, you know, at 20 by 26, every person in the U.S. was supposed to be in a mutually monogamous heterosexual relationship um, with no potential additional exposures. It's just not true. It's not realistic. It's not accurate um, and should not be how we practice medicine. So anybody can have a new exposure at any point. Um, That could include a sexual assault that somebody doesn't want to disclose to me, but just wants to get tested. And that is absolutely fine as well. Um, Again, I don't need to know the situation in which you were potentially exposed unless you want to talk to me about it. Um, But I definitely want to make sure that you're safe. And so I try to ask as generically and openly as possible with absolutely no judgment. Then if somebody says, yes, we got to figure out where we're going to screen. Uh, um, you, uh, there are three places we can screen the oropharynx and then the vagina or the penis and then rectal. Um, so often I ask people, okay, the, for swabs, I can swab you in three different places, or we can get swabs out of three different places. How many of those would you like to do today? And would you like me to collect the swabs or you to collect the swabs? All of those swabs are equally accurate if the patient does it themselves. So I often offer to let the patients collect them themselves for privacy and comfort. And that is totally fine. And if it gets more people screened, I'm all for it. Um, And I don't need to ask, personally, I don't tend to ask um, what types of sexual intercourse you have. I usually just go with, how is it going to change my practice? And I try to frame things in a way that I want to, you know, is this going to change my practice? Okay, so we should screen you for STIs. Where should we screen? Should we screen the oropharynx, the vagina, if that's the anatomy they have, um, and or the rectum? And let them just answer that. I don't need to get into the rest of it. Those are anatomic questions. And I feel like people feel more comfortable answering those than telling you, oh, I do have, I do have anal intercourse. Um, that what I want to know is, do I need to keep you safe by screening there? Um, so if the answer is yes, I either offer, I do the swabs myself or I let them do the swabs. Um, 
And then we also talk about how often we should be screening based upon the risk factors. Let's get that now into the individual things we are screening for and then how to treat them because that's really what will show up probably most commonly on your test. Um, so for one of the most common ones, chlamydia. Chlamydia is um, one of the most common STIs out there. Um, and for women particularly, it is problematic because it's really most often symptom asymptomatic and can cause significant infertility and PID or pelvic inflammatory disease with potential to cause Fitzhugh Curtis, which is adhesions up um, around the liver and things. So the um, you think of you think I think about it like this: chlamydia can cause things to get sticky, just like if you get a, a wound on your leg, the scab while it's healing is sticky. While your body's fighting this off, it creates inflam inflammation and it creates the stickiness. It can then create adhesions in and around your tubes, your fallopian tubes, which can cause infertility or increase your risk for things like ectopic pregnancy. Um, and the general inflammation can cause PID, which can be terribly painful um, and also increase your risk of infertility. So we want to make sure we're screening for this routinely because it doesn't typically have symptoms um, and making sure we're treating it appropriately if they do have it. Um, the way we treat this has changed in the last couple of years. Um, so as with any of these infections, um, I highly recommend you guys get and download on whatever smartphone or smart device you have the CDC STI app. The CDC STI app um, is kept up to date with the most common CDC recommendations if, if you're in the US. Um, and that way I check this periodically, not because I don't think I know, but because things change, resistances change, um, treatment protocol updates come out, things like that. And it's a great one place resource for any STI treatment. So before I send in treatment for people, I usually check this and that's how I first found out about this change in the chlamydia treatment. Um, so chlamydia used to be treated with, and you'll probably still see it in places, azithromycin one gram one time. Um, it has recently changed to doxycycline 100 milligrams BID, so twice a day for seven days. Um, several reasons for this change. One, there's a little bit of macrolide resistance occurring um, in the chlamydial strains out there, so azithro is maybe becoming a little bit less sensitive. But doxy is also better for a couple reasons. Um, we, it's not as good for compliance because you have to take more of it for longer, but because you have to take more of it for longer, it's better for preventing um, passing back and forth with partners because you're treating it a little bit longer. It's also better for penetration and treating rectal chlamydia. And so it gets better treatment and cure rates for rectal, I think, and it was oropharyngeal as well, um, chlamydia. So if somebody has vaginal um, chlamydia, they may well have it in another location, even if they didn't ask me to test there. So um probably better to be treating for all three if it's just about the same in terms of um, efficacy for the primary infection. So doxy 100 milligrams BID for seven days now for chlamydia. An alternative if you have an allergy to doxy is still the azithro one gram one time. The important thing with any of these um, vaginal STIs um, is that you need to abstain from intercourse um, for seven days after the second partner is treated. So say partner one gets treated today, partner two doesn't get treated for another three days because they have to call the health department, get it called in, whatever. Um, so they need to abstain for seven days after that second person is treated to make sure that you're not passing it back and forth. So like incomplete, incomplete treatment of partner two, they can pass it back to partner one who's already completed their treatment. Um, so which obviously prolongs the infection and increases the risk of having a problem related to the infection, like infertility or PID. So we recommend everybody abstain for intercourse for seven days um, until all partners are treated. Two partners, three partners, four partners, whatever, however many partners are involved um, until everybody has been treated. Um, and so I make sure I outline that recommendation for everybody when I'm calling in their treatment for any STI.
All right, second STI that we're gonna talk about is gonorrhea. Most commonly you'll hear us say, we're gonna test for GCCT, gonorrhea, gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, we often test for these two together. They often come on swabs together. You can also send them off the PAPs together for some labs. Um, so the, these two often we talk about in conjunction. So again, gonorrhea, often asymptomatic. We screen for this routinely. It can cause infertility and PID in women. Um, and this one we treat with an IM, intramuscular injection of ceftriaxone. The dose is um, weight-dependent. Um, and if you did not get a concurrent chlamydia um, result with it, um, you just add doxy to it in case the chlamydia would have been positive. So if you have a, a specific swab that's only gonorrhea and that comes back positive, um, you would just presume um, chlamydia positive and you would send both, you would get, have them come in for the IM ceftriaxone and give them doxycycline for um, chlamydia. If like most labs, we now send both gonorrhea and chlamydia at the same time, you can just, um, just treat them with the IM ceftriaxone rather than doing both. Um, and like I said, it's weight dependent, so you just look up their weight and then um, the related, um, the relevant dose. All right, next um, infection is trichomonas. Trichomonas is um, a uh, small parasitic infection. It causes frothy, watery discharge, and on exam, it uh, the the catch word, catch phrase, sorry, on your um, exam will be a strawberry cervix. So somebody will come in complaining of frothy, watery discharge, and you'll they'll tell you on exam, you notice a strawberry cervix. So let's show you a picture of a very pink, very angry looking cervix. Um, that is indicative of trichomonas. We can um, diagnose trichomonas in the office by doing a wet mount, and you can actually see the trichomonads moving on the wet mount, which is mildly alarming at times. Um, but kind of cool. You can make that diagnosis and just treat them on, on the spot. You can also send um, a PCR for trichomonas um, if you're unable to see it under the wet mount and you just want to be sure. Um, the treatment for this has also changed. So for women now, the treatment is, their treatment recommendation is flagile, 500 milligrams BID for seven days. For men, it is two milligrams PO one time. That used to also be the treatment for women, but now we found that the um, efficacy goes up if we do flagile 500 BID for seven days. So women have a longer course of treatment. Um, a lot more women were failing treatment than men. So that has been split up. Again, CDC app, I can't recommend it enough. So HPV, this should be, you should be something you're thinking about with every um, patient where you're screening for STIs. STIs to means, means some type of sexual contact, which means potential exposure to HPV. So the number one thing for me is make sure they've been vaccinated. Um, make sure they've, they've gotten their HPV vaccine. So I offer it and I discuss it anytime I'm, I'm doing STI screening because they just go together in my mind. Um, so HPV can cause either cervical dysplasia and cancers or genital warts, depending on the strain of the HPV. Um, so obviously for cervical cancer, we're doing... Um we're doing pap smears to screen for it. Um, it will, when we, people are over 30 or if they have other indications, when we're getting co-testing, we'll get the HPV result from the cervix that's looking for high-risk um, cervical cancer strains of HPV. But there is also the genital wart strains. Um, and those we typically don't test for, except if we see, if we see genital warts. Um, we can, and we're not sure they're genital warts, we can test them or we can just treat them. For genital warts, typically it's a topical treatment, different um, uh, lasers, acids, um, or like cryotherapy options. Um, it's a it's a long, cumbersome process, if, especially if you have recurrent episodes of genital warts. Um, so again, cannot recommend enough getting the HPV vaccine before um, people are sexually active. So pediatricians, any future pediatricians out there, you've got to be our allies in this. Um, the, the goal is to get the HPV vaccine into every kiddo before they ever become sexually active um, to prevent all of these bad results of HPV. All right, that is all of the ones that we can test for by swab or um, direct biopsy. Um, 
the next set of things are going to be ones that we test for by serum. Um, so for people going to my office, they're like, yeah, I just want all STI screening. I'm like, all right, we're going to do this at B via um, swabs in the office today. And the other, I'll send you down to the lab or have somebody draw your blood for serum screening. Ooh, the one thing I forgot to mention earlier for um, the swab testing, swabs are more accurate than urine. You can get urine tested for things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, and even trick, but the urine is only going to pick up... Um, somewhere between 50 and 80% of cases. It's just not as sensitive. It, it is supposed to be a contaminated urine as well, not a clean catch. Um, so if people come in and they're giving you urine for, say, um, evaluating for a UTI, a clean midstream catch, can, you cannot use that for gonorrhea chlamydia. In order to test for gonorrhea chlamydia via urine, you need it to be a dirty urine. You want it to have touched the skin. You ideally want it to have picked up some of the vaginal discharge on the way out to be contaminated with those things because those are the things that really, unless you have a very um, significant infection, those are the places where you're most likely to have the bacteria and have it be picked up. But if you're worried about somebody, if you really want to make sure you get it, if you really want high sensitivity of a test, you want to do a swab, not a urine for gonorrhea chlamydia for female patients. The, the um, sensitivity specificity changes for men and urine is the preferred there, but for women. All right. So then back to the serum. So the first one we're going to talk about with serum is syphilis. Um, so syphilis presents, um, if you're actually catching it in the disease process with a painful, painless, sorry, painless, painless chancre. So painless chancre is your primary presentation and your first chance to catch it. It is then followed by latent syphilis. And then secondary syphilis is when you can get that pulmar and plantar rash. Um, so people present with pulmar plantar rashes. There's only a few things that cause pulmar and plantar rashes, Coxsackie being the most common, and then syphilis has got to be one of your secondary thoughts whenever you see a pulmar or plantar rash. If somebody comes in, they're just getting screened um, and their RPR is positive or depending on your institutional policy, you either start with RPR and reflex to a syphilis antibody um, or vice versa. But if they come in and both of those are positive, indica indicating an actual um, infection, you have to presume that they are in latent phase unless you know that this is primary syphilis. If it's primary syphilis, you can get away with one shot of penicillin. If it's latent or you cannot prove that it is primary syphilis, which is the vast majority of cases I pick up, they need three doses of the IM penicillin because we need to assume that it is the more difficult to treat the latent syphilis. So unless I can prove it's primary the answer is latent. So again, on your test, if they have described somebody comes in, they don't have a they don't have a painless chancre at the time, but they have a positive testing, three doses of penicillin and latent syphilis, not primary. All right. Um, HIV, also serum screening, universal screening. We recommend screening for everybody, um, everybody who's sexually active. And then this is one, um, we also test in every pregnancy. If people are at high risk for contracting HIV, we need to be talking to them about PrEP um, or pre-exposure prophylaxis. The medications for PrEP have gotten much better. So some people who have declined it in the past may be open to it now with the newer medications with fewer side effects. Um, there are more and more OBGYNs, primary care doctors who are offering PrEP, but also infectious disease is always happy to see people and offer PrEP um, as well. The indications for PrEP are just um, are pretty vast at this point. Um, so and, and they're changing as the risks of PrEP go down. Um, so it's something to read up on and look at. But the highest, um, the most commonly common ones you're going to see on your exams are going to be people who who exchange sex for money um, or goods. Um, and I'm going to put a little asterisk by this and say things like 
seeking arrangements or these online um, commodity-based sex websites count. So people who are not this traditional um, prostitute you're thinking of can still meet criteria for PrEP. So it is a sensitive conversation to have, but certainly one worth having. There are more and more people exchanging sex for goods or money um, than I think people are aware of. Um, and they don't always look the way you stereotypically would expect them to look um, or that the movies may portray it. So making sure you're asking and um, having the discussion about PrEP if you think somebody is at risk or if they think they're at risk. All right, the third thing we're going to test for is Hep B. Um, this is treatable but not curable at this point, and we just recommend routine um, serum screening so that they can get the appropriate appropriate treatment and uh, monitoring if they do have Hep B. Um, hep C we often throw on there as part of their STI screening as well, um, and this one is newly treatable, um, very expensive to treat, but still treatable, um, so good to know about um, and part of that routine screening. Um, there's no routine screening, unfortunately, for HSV. So this is one I often get a lot of questions about, both from patients and students. Somebody comes in saying, I want a full STI panel. I usually specify that this does not include HSV or herpes simplex virus. The reason being, we can test for herpes simplex in your blood or antibodies to herpes simplex virus, but I don't know how or when you were exposed. HSV used to be, HSV1 was oral, HSV2 was genital, and now more and more there's mixing. There's mixing, there's HSV1, that can be genital, there's HSV2 that can be oral. Um, and so it doesn't tell me much. It doesn't tell me if you're at risk of having outbreaks. It doesn't tell me if you've only, if you just had a cold sore. Um, and most people are going to be exposed to at least one of these two HSVs um, before adulthood. So it, it doesn't tell me much to do serum screening. If somebody has a, um, a painful lesion, I will swab the lesion to know if they have genital HSV because that is something they should know. Um, and certainly any painful lesion should be tested. Um, but it's not something that we screen for. It's something that we diagnose. If it is diagnosed, we can offer antivirals as needed for outbreaks or even prophylaxis if people have frequent outbreaks or are immunosuppressed. Um, valcyclovir and acyclovir are the most common for both prophylaxis and treatment if you do diagnose it. Okay, so main take-homes, offer screening to absolutely everybody. Who's the most common or what's the age group with the most rapid increase in STI diagnoses? Those over 65. So again, don't let your pre um, your assumptions or your preconceived notions determine who you offer screening to. I offer it to absolutely everybody at a, at a preventative care visit, and then a lot of people at their at their problem visits if it's a relevant problem potentially. Um, so everybody should be offered screening regardless of your um, perceived relationship status for them or um, anything like that. And then offer them in all three locations, oral, pharyngeal, vaginal, penile, and rectal, um, and let them choose where and how you screen. Um, and then go from there. If you guys have any questions or concerns, let me know. But otherwise, have a great day. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.